You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door, you was a number. And the inmates understood that. If you're out there, there's a pass of periods of being here, just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during an execution, it had an impression on them that maybe it was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to one of the one of the problems we ran into is you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick they'd have to plan in there to, to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated here. My name is Anthony, and today we have a very special guest, the outreach historian of the State Preservation Office. Dan Everhart. So welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for coming. You've got a pretty interesting uh, history here within the agency. Can you kind of talk about everything that you've done here? <laughs> in, in a very short amount of time, I did start working full-time for the State Historic Preservation Office in the fall of 2018 and have been working as the outreach historian at the State Historic Preservation Office since then. But I did start my career as an undergraduate intern with the State Historical Society in the summer of the year 2000. And I worked for the museum and I uh, helped accession collections and I spent about half my time with the sites administrator um, maintenance coordinator, and we've spent a lot of time here at the Old Pen. So there was a brief three-month window of my very earliest career, uh, followed by about 20 years of not working for the agency, <laughs> and then, and then, and then the last. Well, I guess it's a little more than three years of full-time work for the State Historical Society. Yeah, you've done a lot for. Idaho history, I feel like, in your your career and just the community in general. Can you talk about what motivates you to study this and what other positions you've done locally? Sure. I, I've worked professionally for the U.S. Forest Service, the Boise National Forest, the Idaho Transportation Department. I'd spent a couple of years working for a statewide historic preservation nonprofit, in Oregon, called Restore Oregon. And throughout that professional career, I've, I've done a lot of volunteer work for a statewide preservation organization here in Idaho called Preservation Idaho. And all of that, you know, sort of stems from a general interest in passion for historic places. I've always been drawn to the story of things, to artifacts, say, at the museum, and then when you think about historic buildings as as just hugely scaled up artifacts which have their own story and are more vulnerable in many ways than the small 
artifacts that you find in a museum. They can't be donated somewhere easily. They can't be stored in a closet or in a storage container. They must be maintained in order to survive, and someone must care about them. And so I feel very passionate about historic places, both because of the story they tell and because of their vulnerability. There's a lot of our history that was demolished and destroyed, right. and and it continues to happen. And without oh, yeah. organizations like both Shippo and Preservation Idaho, like we w- we would lose out on all these o- objects. Right. Yeah. No. It's it's. I think it's important. If I if I didn't feel like it was important, I wouldn't be doing it. I feel like there's a there's a need for historic preservation, and I think the historic preservation movement over the last decade or so has gotten a lot better about telling more diverse stories, which I also feel very passionately about. Historic preservation has always been very good about telling the story of a particular demographic and, you know, wealthy Caucasian men and their houses or places of business have always been sort of at the forefront of the preservation movement. And that has slowly begun to change and 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 that change has sort of sped up over the past 10 or 15 years so that we're we're trying to do a better job about telling more diverse stories but all of these stories are important and they the places that are represented in those stories need champions and i i want to be one of those champions yeah one of my favorite things here at the site back in probably 2000 you walked around with uh, a fairly iconic figure at the site and took an oral history. Yes. <laughs> Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, I was asked by the person who I was working for, the, the, the person who, who was coordinating my internship, if I could do a little research on the two-yard towers because there was a question about certain aspects of their construction and... To be clear, you know, I just finished my junior year of college and was going into my senior year, and I wasn't I wasn't really great at researching things, and I certainly didn't know where to look exactly, not in the way I would know today. And I quickly found that I was at an impasse and I couldn't find more information. And someone suggested that I speak to Joe Munch, and Joe had been a guard here. Um, at the penitentiary, captain of the guard, I think, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, they said, well, you should talk to him. He might know something about these two-yard towers, the wooden towers. So I somehow coordinated that and borrowed a recorder from the archives and walked around with Joe. And I'm, I'm sure we talked about the two-yard towers, but I don't remember him knowing much about them. He But we talked about all these other random weird things, all of these crazy stories about past staff and inmates and his relationship with the inmates. And and then I I remember specifically, there are lots of stories that we can't talk about, but I remember specifically him telling me about how his, he had two sons and, and as young boys that they had, he would bring them to the pen. I didn't realize it wasn't actually the old pen. It was the new penitentiary south of Boise. But he would let them run around with the prisoners. And he he was very, he had this very, you know, 
gruff German accent, which I won't even attempt to um, repeat. But he basically said they knew that they couldn't mess with his boys because they knew who his, they knew who the boy's father was, and if they messed with these boys, they'd be in trouble. You know, and um, and years later, um, not too long later, but a few years later, I um, I started working for the U.S. Forest Service. And one of the first people I met in the office with me was this guy named Mark Munch. And I said, well, you don't have any relationship to this old prison guard, Joe Munch. Oh, that's my dad. And he he said, I said, what? Are you one of the boys that would run around at the prison? He's like, yes. Yeah, we would get our hair cut at the prison barber. And, you know, we would go around. I thought... What a small world. Of course, Boise has always been a very small place. And um, But what a small world that I was working with him. And I had interviewed Joe. And what a crazy story that was. Joe had lots of interesting things to say. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorite oral histories. And just kind of how combative you two are. You're just... I don't even really remember. Good. I remember almost nothing about it. I, <laughs> I, I repeat some of the stories so often that I'm sure they're half untrue. But, um, yeah, I, I do have a favorite story. But um, it was a really interesting thing. I would have only been like, I would have been like 19 when I talked to him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So good. Ah, well, I'm going to have to insert just a segment, just so people could get a get an idea. Here, you have 20 years ago, you know, I was talking to Joe Munch. <laughs> I have no idea what I even sounded like or what questions I asked. I don't think I had any real preparation for it. Yeah. I just, it was just like, here, why don't you do this thing? And I did it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Wild. All the information the historical society got, 75% is garbage. No good. Was that? Well, you got the wrong information. I went here a couple of times without any, telling anybody that I was here. Mm-hmm. You know, I played dummies. Played right. Right. Tourists, you know. Right. My God, these guys come up with shit. I didn't believe. <laughs> Including some of these old gods like Riddick, Riddick, or whatever uh-huh. his name was. He make an up stuff. And then the good stuff, what really is true, they don't talking about it, you know. Oh, I don't know. And there are some guys escaped right over the double fence right there. With the tower got up there asleep. And I caught the guys down here at the golf course, shot him. Right down here. That young punk. And the, the guard was asleep. God was asleep. I fired him ten minutes later. Oh, I, I, I suppose so. So, you weren't here when they built the two-yard? No, the two-yard was here when I came. All right. Iragan was one of the two-yard. Iragan was uh, a relative from the captain and so on. So, like I told you earlier on the phone, mm-hmm. when I came to work here, that whole prison system was a family affair. Right. Everybody was related to everybody. <laughs> and everybody was screwing everybody. <laughs> you know, that wife was going with that guy and that wife was swapping with that guy. You know, that's the truth. I mean, <laughs> it's, no, it's no bold. It's, it's the damn truth. That's been an interesting... I mean, I could give you names, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to bad people, but... 
must have been an interesting oh, it was place quite, to, like I say, it place was quite to a, work. Uh, quite something. <laughs> Alright, let's get back to <laughs> <laughs> the topic of the hour. The, the assay office, the 1872 general mining law, and their connection. Can you talk about your office and the history of that building itself and where it's at and yeah what it was so the the u.s assay office building in downtown boise it's located on a square block of downtown real estate bounded by idaho and maine fronts on maine idaho and maine second and third streets and within this square block is a large relatively large stone building two stories in height with a hipped roof and a, and a cupola it's actually a more of a vent and it sits in the middle of this block surrounded by lawn and trees and it's a building that passers-by and people who have lived in Boise for six months or 60 years are always curious about there is some sort of mystery about the building why does it sit there like that why does it have bars on the windows people assume it's some sort of jail sometimes or other things but it was built for the u.s treasury department as a boise branch office essentially and its purpose was to provide a point to process gold silver lead ore not to refine it in large quantities but determine out of small quantities relative purity percentages and essentially value the building has had many lives since it was first constructed in 1872 but its its purpose and the reason why it's there is inextricably tied to the chief reason for settlement of the Boise region and Idaho territory in general, and that is mining. So in much of the West, there is this story of boom and bust, these cycles of mineral discovery and a, a rush to, to reach them, a frantic search to find them, and then the sort of secondary, you know, fading away as the, as the community disappears slowly back to whatever, you know, sort of static state. And Idaho's history is, is just one boom and bust story after another. The earliest stories are all about gold and silver discovery and extraction. And later booms and busts are about timber and other sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But starting in 1860 with discovery along the Clearwater River in North Idaho, what was then Washington Territory, what we think of as the state today, begins to be settled. And here in southern Idaho in 18. 62, 63, there are discoveries in what we call the Boise Basin to the northeast of Boise, Idaho City, Centerville, and Placerville, and to the 
southwest of Boise in the Owyhee Mountains, Silver City being the main uh, community there. And so this discovery, these discoveries, and the influx of miners to seek their fortune then results in a population boom, not just in those specific mining districts, but in what is now going to be Idaho Territory. So Washington Territory is created as a state. They break off Idaho Territory, and at the time, Idaho Territory includes all of what we think of today as Idaho, almost all of Montana, almost all of Wyoming. And this vast region is given a territorial capital at Lewiston in 1863, and then there's a series of of further land divisions as Montana Territory and later Wyoming Territory break off from from this large territory that we think of as Idaho. All of that making mining not just important to the economy of the state or the territory, but integral to its physical shape. The dimensions of the state and its boundaries and borders are all defined by the boom and bust cycle and the necessity of administering these vast tracts of western land. So in Idaho, in in what we think of as Idaho territory, there is this massive influx of settlement. And the story of western migration is exactly that. Folks migrating from the east to the west. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, in those first waves in the 1840s, 1850s, They are passing through, if they ever make it to what we think of as Idaho, they're passing through Idaho territory or Oregon territory at the time, and they're passing through on their way to the promised land of either the rich mining fields of California or the rich agricultural fields of the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And they're going, they're not stopping, they're just going through when the 1860s come around and there are these mineral strikes in what we think of as Idaho there is a reverse migration from the west to the east, and it starts to boom the population. And we're created as a territory in 1863, signature by Abraham Lincoln um, on the Congressional Act that creates Idaho Territory. And we then start to sort of begin administering this vast land, first from the territorial capital in Lewiston, and then shortly afterwards, a territorial capital moves to Boise. And because mining is central to all of this, the idea is that mining needs certain infrastructure. The the business of mining needs certain infrastructure. And one of those things is an assay office. And we begin as territorial representatives and citizens, we begin petitioning the Congress for the installation of a treasury building in the new territorial capital of Boise. And that would be either a mint or an assay office. Mm -hmm. And we were allocated an assay office in 1869, only six years after the territory is created, only six years after the city of Boise is founded, we're given $100,000 to build an assay office in Boise. Yeah, that's the same time $40,000 was appropriated for the creation of a territorial prison, and that construction starts almost simultaneously with right. the assay office. So, And the two, of course, are inextricably linked, yeah. because... There is no need for law 
and order and a prison without the mining and the you know the miners who have come here by the hundreds and thousands and the sort of lawless nature of this vast inland region. And so it, it's no surprise that there are these two federal institutions that are sort of being established at the same time. Those are, they're, they're sort of hand in glove. One, one is um, a more economic and sort of industrial mm-hmm. need in the assay office. And the other is this sort of like imprint of, of law and justice in, you know, in the West. So they appropriate $100,000 and they assign the architect of the treasury to to design a building. And that building construction begins in 1870. It's completed in 1871, but the building, the facility doesn't open until 1872 because they're awaiting a shipment of equipment. Um, Idaho doesn't have any access to the major transportation networks in the, in the nation. The Transcontinental Railroad, which is only a few years old, runs south of Idaho through Utah and Nevada. And so there's, you know, there's no access to the rail line directly. And so any equipment has to be shipped to certain places and then hauled by freight wagon. So they're waiting on equipment. And that equipment arrives in the late winter, early spring of 1872. And they begin operations that year. Yeah, it's, it's parallel. And the territorial prison opens March 21st, 1872, even though construction began in 1870. It's, it's interesting and yep. that they are so tied together, these yeah. two federal buildings. Yeah. about assaying would they have had an like a some sort of assaying equipment office in like silver city or in you know pierce or fino yeah absolutely and there were there were private assayers Mm -hmm. who would who would offer their services to a miner in almost every one of these boom towns Mm -hmm. and so um so i guess that's a good dovetail to what assaying is, mm-hmm. which is essentially the processing of small quantities of mineral ore to determine relative quantity, purity, percentage, and therefore value. Mm-hmm. So without getting technical at all, essentially a miner comes to an assayer, gives them a small quantity of ore, there's a series of processes in which the mineral ore is sort of crushed and melted, refined, chemicals are added, chemicals extracted, all in a scientific process required smelting furnaces and a lot of heat. And essentially, the result is some sort of certificate or, or paperwork that says, this ore that you brought me 
is 38% lead, 21% silver, and 6% gold. That gold is 47% pure. That silver is 68% pure, et cetera, et cetera. And essentially, the concept is that this document or this 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 package of information given to the the miner is a validation for and and, and maybe an incentive for more mining, mm-hmm. right? Because if I come to you and I I give you a a sample of ore that is turns out to be valuable, turns out a high percentage of gold or a high quality of gold or silver that allows me to find outside investors i can go to a bank and i and i can say i know that my ore sample is you know is valuable and here's how or put my more my own money in it or 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 just keep digging or on the flip side stop digging you know there's nothing there's nothing here it's gonna it's a waste of my time and my money to keep digging and so, so there is actual value in the assay process because it allows you to understand value and to, to know and, and quantify potential investment. And if there's value in this document as in, in general, then there's more value in the document as delivered by or determined by a federal office. So the private assayer in Silver City or Boise City or Idaho City, maybe they knew what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they were the sort of, you know, person who would pull teeth on Mondays and, you know, assay, you know, minerals on Tuesdays (laughs) and, you know, soft people's legs on on Thursdays. So you didn't know for certain that you were getting someone with the qualification and experience to do a good job in the private assaying process. But you could, you assumed, bet on a document with an official U.S. Treasury stamp. So there is real legitimate value in having a federal office to do this work and to to legitimize your investment. And when the building opens, when the office opens in 1872, as I mentioned, there's no access to rail. Mm -hmm. Any travel to any other region of the country is hugely time-consuming and laborious. The closest place to find a federal office to do this assaying process before our office opens in Boise is in Denver or in San Francisco. So if you want to have this process done by a federal agent, it's going to take you weeks or more to get yourself out of the mountains find your way maybe to the transcontinental railroad running through nevada mm-hmm. and you know get on a train and go one of two directions and eventually find your way in one of these cities so the value of having something like that built in boise was you know was really high and that's why that's why territorial leaders were pushing for it and i think that's why the federal government thought it was a, a reasonable investment mm-hmm. that really brings us back to 1872 and the mining law of course mining was happening right Mm -hmm. mining was already happening and and so 1872 the mining act really just sort of codifies existing practice Mm -hmm. people in 1860 in northern idaho 
were going, they were discovering something, then they were staking a claim and they were saying, this is going to be mine. I'm going to develop this mineral resource to extract it. But there wasn't a sort of official allowance under federal law for them to do this and for them to then assume real title to the land, which was all owned by the federal government. The entirety of the inland northwest and beyond was federal lands. Mm -hmm. So the 1872 Mining Act essentially outlines a process whereby miners could stake a claim and, quote, prove up on that claim, install a certain amount of infrastructure that would give them the right after a certain amount of investment and a certain amount of time to take title of this land from the federal government. So before that, it had been happening somewhat similar to this, but it hadn't been it hadn't been official. It was just what was happening on the on the ground. And because, you know, the Northwest, the West in general is such a massive region and sort of lawless, who's going to enforce this law that doesn't exist? Mm -hmm. But with 1872 and the Mining Act, now we have a real process for doing the things essentially that have already been codifying the things that have already been done. And it does change how federal land transfers and mining claims occur in a way that the Homestead Act did about 10 years before mm -hmm. and, and other things. It's part of the continued settlement of, this is not the politically correct word, but this is the way they thought of it, the civilization of mm -hmm. the American West. And, you know, the first wave was agrarian mm -hmm. and, you know, giving giving settlers land to farm this next wave is it's related to mining mm -hmm. but it is the same concept which is that you are civilizing these unsettled lands which of course we know is it's not true there were thousands of people here so settling these lands and giving a legitimacy to the transfer of ownership from the from the federal government to the private landowner and it just sort of continued the practice of of earlier concepts just in a different industry. Do you know how much value, how much money came through the SA office was speculated on? It's know? hard to it's hard to know because see again there's the assay office was not a repository of bullion. Yeah. It was a place to process ore to determine value. So there are claims about you know, millions of dollars worth of mineral ore coming through the building, it's hard to know with any certainty if that's a reference to the physical samples that were in the building right, yeah. or or the sort of assayed and assessed value of potential mining claims. But there is no doubt that Idaho Territory in the 1860s and 70s was producing an enormous quantity of the nation's silver and gold mm -hmm. output, lead as well. And we were third to California, Nevada. So this 
this wasn't a small amount. I have seen some t statistics that suggest that as much as 20% of the nation's precious metals mm -hmm. in, in those couple of decades, the 1860s and 1870s, came from Idaho territory, um, which would have been, a, a, again, a tremendous amount. It, you couldn't say that our building, the assay office, was, you know, touched all of that, right. you know, mineral, mm -hmm. um, that, that would just wouldn't be true, but it, it does speak to, um, to the huge value of this economy mm -hmm. and the reason why Idaho territory continued to see an influx of settlers. Uh, would folks up in the Clearwater area, would they transport there or here to the capital or would they go over the border to Washington? Yeah, I, I think it's unlikely that they would, that they wouldn't do whatever was most convenient. Right. Um, so I don't know where a similar facility would be. Um, if you would have to go over, my assumption is you'd have to go to Western Washington on the other side of, side of the Cascades. That's my assumption. I don't. I don't know. Oh. But they would choose whatever was easiest. Yeah. There was never a north-south railroad connection mm -hmm. in Idaho, and the rudimentary roads that were yeah. available wouldn't have been much of an incentive to come mm -hmm. south either. So that's why there are, you know, always have been these sorts of economic and political capitals of Idaho, two of the three exist outside the borders of our state. So so there are reasons for that. The geographic, you know, the, the terrain of the state, you know, was an impediment to to sort of travel and 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 commerce from north to south. So I don't know. I don't know where they would have gone, but, yeah. but they would have done what was whatever was easiest for them. Right. Do you know, was there an industry to transport this? Like were there armored guarded vehicles full of ore to be tested and sent back? Or? I don't think so. Not in that way. Because because you have to remember, this is just rock. Right. This isn't, these are not bars of gold. Mm -hmm. This is not, you know, this is not like the treasure of the Sierra Madre or whatever. Yeah, this is yeah. just rock. It might be rock with veins of mineral in mm -hmm. it. But who's going to hold up some, you know, raggedy miner coming out of the mountains with, you know, a sack yeah. of rock? It's it, it doesn't seem like there's much value for a would-be thief mm -hmm. in doing that. So I, I don't think that was really a thing. I think, I, again, these <laughs> these were rocks. They would then get processed. And even so, you know... When you took away that piece of paper mm -hmm. from the assay office, that piece of paper was probably more valuable than anything, any of the rock. You know, they weren't bringing in thousands of pounds. They were right. bringing in, what, you know, 10, 20 pounds of rock. So mm -hmm. so this was not enough quantity to to be an incentive for theft so gotcha. again i think the i think the valuable thing that you left with was the piece of paper with the government seal the mineral the stone itself wasn't really worth anything then there's of course you know the mining the extraction the all you know the processing in massive quantities that results in that sort of attractive stealable 
thing, right. but not not the stuff that's coming to the assay office. Can you talk about more about the design of the building and how like what different floors were used for? I know there's a basement as well. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so again, the, the assay office was designed by the Office of the Architect of the Treasury. This office was tasked with designing buildings all across the country. And our architect, uh, the architect appointed at the time, was a man named Mullet, Alfred Mullet. Mullet had many other buildings that he designed in, in much larger places. And it, it's possible that he sort of just rustled around in a drawer somewhere and found a plan that would work for Boise. That said, you know, we know we have we have records at the National Archives which show our building in in plan view and and in elevation and with detail. And it's very clearly labeled as the assay office for Boise. And this two-story building, as you say, actually does have three levels. It has a basement, a first floor, and a second floor, and then a sort of unused, unusable attic space. The building uh, was designed essentially with offices on the first floor, offices and processing the chief assayer had an office. There was sort of an intake office where a miner might come in, sign away, you know, his mineral on such and such a date, um, told to return at a later date. Uh, there were a couple other rooms for processing paperwork and doing some of those additional things. The basement housed a couple of large smelting furnaces, mm-hmm. and those were for the processing of the ore. And uh, as well as storage rooms and apparently um, maybe some sort of rudimentary living quarters for uh, one or two employees of the, of the assay office, mm-hmm. like a clerk. The second floor, the upper level of the building, was reserved for a seven-room apartment for the chief assayer and his family. It had a a living room, a dining room, a kitchen, three bedrooms, and a bathroom, all on the second floor. And so a pretty short commute uh, <laughs> to, off, to, to your office every day down the stairs. Um, and uh, and this, um, this building, as I mentioned before, is built of sandstone. The exterior design is sort of in what we would call an Italianate um, design although it's, it's sort of hard to categorize. It does include a couple of particular details, which we know are a, an architectural reference to the work that was happening in the building. Mm-hmm. Above the front door is a small six-petaled flower, yeah. and that six-petaled flower is a sex foil, that's the architectural term for it. Um, You might hear in Gothic architecture, there's a trefoil or a quatrefoil, a three-petaled flower, a four-petaled flower. This is a six-petaled flower. Um, And the the sex foil, the six-petaled flower, is an ancient symbol for gold. So there's a direct architectural reference to gold in this architectural detail. And... If your eye goes further up the building, you would find that above the central window on the second floor, there is this sort of odd shield-shaped element. 
which is in fact a very abstracted version of the seal of the U.S. Treasury Department. So it doesn't include any of the details, but it has it has just a few elements which give you um, which give you the idea that it is sort of again this very abstracted minimalistic seal mm-hmm. of the U.S. Treasury. If you were to look on your your money, you would see this seal, um, and uh, and that um, and so that element. In addition to the sex foil below, um, these are two architectural details which speak to the use and ownership um, of the building. That is fascinating. I w- I've been wondering what those were. I will definitely post a photo of that in our Facebook group. So if you want to see those, next time you're at the essay office, you can explain what they represent. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. The building was designed, you know, with out of Boise sandstone and and the architectural details are actually quite fine. Mm-hmm. Um they spent obviously a lot of time and money building the building and and when it was completed, it would have been the most imposing most permanent building in the city. There maybe the territory there there would have been a few other brick or stone buildings mm-hmm. in boise but most of the city again this is less than 10 years after the city's founded mm-hmm. most of the buildings are rudimentary um wood buildings mm-hmm. sometimes two story but not very often yeah. and tents and some early houses were built of um, of locally made brick, and in fact, sometimes sun baked clay yeah. adobe brick. But um, but this building, this sandstone two story building with actual architectural details, um, would have been the most imposing, most important. Um, symbol mm-hmm. of federal government and government of any kind in what would have been a thousand mile radius, right? So, mm-hmm. so there's hardly it's it's difficult to it's difficult to for us to think of that building in that in that way today yeah. because so many other buildings, our state capitol building, for instance, are much grander, much more imposing architectural buildings and and much taller, much larger. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you think to the first decade of Idaho territory, um, the city of Boise, this would have been an incredibly important place. And the grounds that surround the building, the square block Mm -hmm. of grounds take on a very important civic function as well. So it's not just an imposing or architecturally, you know, significant building. It's a building that then has these, um, this sort of lush landscaping. Of course, originally there was no landscaping. It was just a sagebrush stretch, just like everything else in Boise. But early after construction, there's newspaper records of citizens of Boise coming together to donate plantings 
trees and shrubs mm -hmm. to the grounds to beautify the grounds of the U.S. Assay Office building. And the U.S. Assay Office building then became the de facto, the first city park. There is no other place to sort of walk and, you know, and relax in Boise. The closest equivalent would be one of our early cemeteries, mm -hmm. which would have had a similar function and people treated them the same way. But, uh, but there were no city parks for another 30 years. And so our grounds there became a de facto city park. In fact, and, and, and that, that history continues. They're still treated by the public as a public park. People refer to it as a park. It's never been owned by the city. It's never been designated a park. It just has been always used as a park. So it's, an, it's an actually a really interesting um, story of sort of the, the, the federal use of the building and, and yet the public assumption of you know, ownership and use of the grounds. That just makes me wonder, like, if so many people kind of flock to it as this general hangout area, were there any problems? Were there any big stories that occurred around the grounds? So as far as I've ever read, there's never been any major event. You know, you would sort of think that maybe there would be like a 4th of July celebration on the grounds or something like that. And that's not to say that there wasn't. Yeah. It's just um, it's just that we haven't found that information yet. Mm -hmm. um, probably because we haven't done enough digging, frankly, to see if it if something like this ever happened. Yeah. Um, you know, did did people come to the grounds and get rowdy? You know, did they? You know, did people? You know, occasionally camp there? I, I honestly, I, I don't right. know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, I can tell you that today people occasionally get rowdy on the grounds. Um, that um, you know that that occasionally people um, you know people sleep on our grounds. Uh, we don't encourage that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that may have been true for 150 years, right. honestly. There may have been, you know, sort of unexpected or maybe even unwelcome activities on mm -hmm. the grounds. Um, of course, during the time when the, when the assay office functioned and the chief assayer and his family lived yeah. upstairs, it, it would have probably been more... Um, would have been easier to keep an eye on things, right? Yeah. And and you know, someone would have been there looking out the windows, you know. Um, certainly, while they were awake, you would expect there to be a little more control of the grounds. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know about you know about certain big events. It's very possible that that happened in you know on the grounds, but um, that's unclear. Yeah, I. Were there any iconic figures who lived or worked at the office that would be important for? A people to know about i think generally speaking the chief assayer would have been an important figure in boise mm -hmm. they would have been an important representative of federal government and uh, and would have had a valued role in society they and their family mm -hmm. so and um, would they have been appointed by like the president or yes okay yeah. yeah i mean there was 
you know, all the way into the early 20th century, you know, the the federal government sort of stumbled along with a series of appointments in every presidential administration. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really inefficient, actually, which is why it doesn't work that way anymore. But yes, these would have been these would have been appointees. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been a political job. You might not have actually been an assayer uh, to take that job. You know, you might have had someone working for you mm-hmm. who knew the ins and outs of the science. Um, you might not yourself be uh, an assayer, although presumably you learn a little on the job. I don't know. Yeah. But m- more of an administrator, maybe, is, mm-hmm. is the, what the chief assayer was. The man who donated the land for what was to become the, the assay office um, donated a, a square block of, of Boise's original town site to the federal government. And he was a, he was a private assayer. Mm-hmm. I think he might have assumed that having been the donor of the land, that he would be appointed as the chief assayer. I mean, you, you can see the logic there. It turned out he wasn't. He wasn't appointed. Although there was a delay in the arrival of the first appointee. Mm-hmm. And during that delay, those few months, whatever it was, I think less than a year, the donor of the land was appointed interim assayer at yeah. Boise. Okay. But, uh, but he missed out on the, if he thought, if he thought he was going to get a, a job yeah. um, by donating land, he was mistaken. So the chief assayer, you know, arrived, there's a series of federal appointees over the years. Some of them, like the very first chief assayer, not from Boise, not from Idaho at all. Later on, local Idahoans are appointed to the position. Yeah. And this is a way to, you know, to reflect some sort of, you know, administration's gratitude for, you know, a political favor or something mm-hmm. like that that might have been done. Probably the most well-known of our chief assayers the, that is the the name that resonates with people today is a man named Joseph Cunningham. He would have moved into the assay office with his new wife, Laura Moore, who had married, of course, Joseph Cunningham, her name then Laura Moore Cunningham. She was the daughter of one of Boise's wealthiest citizens, um, the president of one of the banks of uh, downtown Boise and, um, and really, you know, one of the the most important society figures in Boise at the day. And so um, Joseph and Laura Cunningham lived at the assay office during his tenure as chief assayer. And another family name associated with the assay office and that position of chief, chief assayer is the Church family. So... Um, most people have heard of Senator Frank Church, mm-hmm. and um, this would have been his grandfather, who was appointed chief assayer in Boise, again, in the late 19th, early 20th century. Occasionally, there might have been questions or conflicts about who that political appointment was. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there are some interesting stories about the appointment of, of a Mormon man, when the Mormon population was not well liked in parts of Idaho, and uh, and there was a controversy about the appointment of a of a, I, I believe he was a bishop, and that didn't go over too well with certain 
factions of the you know of Idaho's um, population. Mm-hmm. But these men, re- regardless of of who they were or who they were appointed by, um, certainly in the earliest days of the assay office in the 1870s, the 1880s, both they and their families would have had a, a fairly prominent role in social life in the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's interesting to think, you know, were the wives of the assayers, you know, entertaining, you know, their peers at the assay office, you know, was there a sort of the same sort of social, social expectations that you can imagine in a private home mm-hmm. would have been, you know, extended in a in a public building. So I actually did not know that the assayer and his family lived upstairs. That's, that's fascinating yeah. to me. That's news to me today. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Wow. I, what's it like working in that building? Oh, I think it's great. Um, <laughs> the, the scale of the building and the scale of the rooms that you're working in are, is quite large. So I work in an office. I work in the chief assayer's office, actually. That really. Um, I work in the room that he would have worked in, and it's, it's a really cool office. And his and his, you know, these ceilings on the first floor of the building are, I think, fourteen feet tall. So the building stays fairly temperature controlled. We have like two and a half foot thick brick and sandstone walls, high ceilings. It can be a bit echoey. And at the same time, you know, it, it is a charming place. We have lots of historic furniture in the building that has been sort of passed along by generations of different, not just employees, but actual agencies, because the State Historical Society is the third agency to own and manage the, the building. After the Treasury Department, there was a, a period where the U.S. Forest Service owned and managed the building. And, and so we have furniture that probably dates from the Forest Service's takeover and even earlier um, from perhaps, you know, hand-me-downs from other federal agencies. Um, so there's historic furniture, and it's a great place to work. And, um, and you know, it's beautiful grounds and, you know, right downtown, and it's a pretty cool place. Yeah. Do you kind of feel similarly to... This chief clerk who's living upstairs, you you live fairly close. I, yes. I don't want to out you as being <laughs> really close to living next. Yeah, to I live very with. close. I live I live across the street. Yeah, Do you feel like a similar <laughs> amount of pride. And like, it's it's it is a I feel and have felt. You know, I've only worked for the state historical society despite my three month internship in the year two thousand. <laughs> I've only worked for the state historical society for a little over three years. But I've lived next to the assay office for almost 20. And so there is a sort of ownership that I feel a responsibility for or, a, you know, a pride in that place. And it's not just because I work there. It's because it's incredibly important to that part of downtown Boise. And, uh, and I think many of our neighbors probably feel the same. They treat it as an extension of their home. People barbecue on our lawn people you know play with their dogs it is a place where people feel comfortable using the space and i think many people like me sort of feel maybe justifiable maybe not justifiable ownership over the over the space um, which they treat you know as as an extension of their their lawn yeah and this year we are doing a, a project there yep. at the Chippo office, at the old assay office. Can you talk about what what the goal, what the vision is? And sure. So, in celebration of our 
of our 150th birthday, the State Historical Society and the State Historic Preservation Office are working um, with the Foundation for Idaho History and donors from across the state to reinvest in the grounds. So I mentioned before that these grounds have been, have their origin in, you know, in public giving, right? The, the trees and shrubs were actually planted by and given by citizens of, of Boise City back in 1872, maybe a little later. But that sort of ownership in and, you know, an assumption of ownership by the public is now being reflected in a campaign to ask the public to donate to this project, which will which will ultimately allow the State Historical Society to do a pretty major reinvestment in the landscaping. Many of our trees are are at or past the 100-year mark. Some of them go back probably to the early, mid-1870s, some a few years later than that. But as landscaping, as trees, as everything ages, of course, there is a, a concern about about health. Um, so we have, um, we've completed a major study of all of the trees on the site. Most of them are in, in good, fair condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple um, not so great. It will likely have to be replaced in the coming years. This project will plant new trees. We'll invest in the trees that we have as well as the planting beds that we have. It will reinstall some elements that mm-hmm. um, have gone away over the years. We know from historic photos and planting plans that there was always at least a couple of different places where the occupants of the assay office, whether it's the family or later on agencies, had annual flower beds on the site. We don't have any of those now. Um, They've disappeared over the years. We will reintroduce uh, some annual flower beds uh, with so sort of annual color on the site. We will also replant in a couple places particular trees in particular places and particular species to fill out a a historic feature. This would be a good time to tell you that there in the original donation of plants and plantings, the Boise German-American immigrant community mm-hmm. banded together and donated and planted a row of linden trees. It's a double row. We call it an alley. Mm-hmm. Um, and this double row of linden trees um, was on either side of a small pathway on both the east and west side of the building. This double row of lindens was a reference to the famous boulevard of linden trees in Berlin called Unter den Linden. And that boulevard of linden trees is, you know, is, is, is much larger, of course, than ours. <laughs> yes. uh, runs between big civic buildings in, in Berlin. This was a direct reference to Berlin and the heritage of these German-Americans. Over the years, a few of those trees have, uh, have disappeared for one reason or another. Mm. They were actually probably planted too close together. Yeah. And, and particularly on the east side, you can't really see the double row, the L.A., because of how many trees are missing. So we're going to replant a couple linden trees in specific places to, uh, to help regrow that, that row of linden trees, in addition to the, the flower beds that we'll be reintroducing. And then, you know, so in addition to maintenance and 
restoration of the landscape. We're going to do something to augment the landscape, to add a feature that has never been there historically, and that is a, uh, a walking path around the interior of our fence line, which will follow the fence line and the, the planting beds along the fence line, so sort of undulate around the site. Mm -hmm. This walking path will then feature benches for folks to sit, as well as interpretive signs to tell the history of the site and its evolution from U.S. Treasury to Forest Service to State Historical Society, as well as talk about the architecture, the families that lived there, mm -hmm. as, as many as we think eight signs, which will give people a real understanding, if they were to read them all, a real understanding for the history and evolution of the site in a way that really isn't available to them at all. We have a small interpretive sign of dubious origin and accuracy on the site right now. It's been there for, we know, at least 60 years. We don't know how accurate it is. Um, that will be replaced with this series of interpretive signs along this path, benches, etc. It will provide a sort of passive recreation for people and sort of a give them, if they wish, a way to learn more about the site. So a whole series of things to both, again, maintain, restore, and then augment the landscape. And all of that is being done to coincide with our 150th anniversary we will likely break ground sometime in late summer, early fall. Yeah. And we'll have various public events associated with both the groundbreaking and the, the opening of the, the new facilities. So that will all be really exciting and I think gives people the opportunity, like Boiseans of 150 years ago, to contribute directly to this landscape, which we, we think people will respond positively to because there's mm -hmm. been, you know, there's always been so much use and, and public, quote, ownership of yeah. the site. Um, so there. <laughs> I, I love it. I love just kind of the symbolic nature of everything that's going on there, like the environmental detriment that mining has had across the state and you are beautifying a space and making a nice environment for people to visit today. And, and just like looking at the State Historic Preservation Office, um, your office is actually a federally funded program. Right. So it's, it's part of our agency, but it's funded by a federal That's true. grant. And yeah. uh, like historically, you know, this, this was funded by a federal government in the territory I, right. I just like all these interweaving connections that are <laughs> yeah. all coming together this year it's yeah just, no it is it's really it's really exciting to know um to see those sort of the continuity of i hadn't really thought about our our federal funding but but you're right there is where our office is federally funded through a through a grant from the national park service and um and of course the previous tenants the forest service and the and the assay office would have been federally funded as well. Um, the continuity of, of use of the of the landscape over 150 years by the yeah. public is, I think, is pretty remarkable. And uh, and this opportunity for the public to reinvest in the landscape that they use um, and in this place that we maintain for their benefit is is great too. I cannot wait to 
have a picnic at the assay assay park <laughs> yeah well you can come and do it right now <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. before construction starts or um and visit us anytime but the um there is uh, an excitement in our in our office about um, about these opportunities, and uh, and we're looking forward to inviting people to see you know the improvements that we intend to make with their help. You know what? We never introduce what Shippo does. What <laughs> okay. is the State Historic Preservation Office? This should this should have been early on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the State Historic Preservation Office is a department of the State Historical Society, and the work of our office is to document and designate historic places, mm-hmm. archaeological sites, and uh, and the full gamut of, of 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 architecture and construction, historic buildings around the state. We document these places. We hold massive repositories of, of files, now mo- mostly digitized, for, for that information. And we manage that information on behalf of the citizens of Idaho to represent their interests in federal projects. When a federal agency expends funds or uses federal lands or or implements federal permits, they must take into consideration the impacts of their action or their funding on sites which are architecturally or archaeologically significant. And so our office takes the data that we hold, we compare it to the projects that and the project areas where they're working, and we work together with these federal partners to better understand the potential impacts and hopefully avoid or minimize any negative consequence of of federal projects on historically, archaeologically, architecturally significant places. We run a whole um, range of programs which which relate to the collection and documentation of historic places. The most well-known is the National Register of Historic Places program, which we manage in partnership with our our federal partners, the National Park Service. Mm -hmm. We also um, oversee a program of local participation in public preservation projects, and that's our Certified Local Government program which uh, works with 40 city and county governments across the state um, to distribute uh, grant funds and, uh, and work with them to prioritize preservation at the local level. We do our management uh, of, of this federal program process, um, interaction with federal agencies, and a whole slew of other um, sort of lesser-known but um, but we think important uh, programs, which which again represent the interests of the citizens of Idaho in the long term um, identification of and protection of historic and archaeological places. So you're like an assayer for historic buildings. Right. <laughs> we crush the buildings. <laughs> we we extract. melt the buildings. <laughs> we extract the precious content of their history no we try to be as uh as as 
we try to limit how invasive we are. But yes, mm-hmm. we we collect information and we actually, you know, discern and decipher information, which we do put in, you know, into the form of, you know, public certification documents. That's, uh, that's a funny way to think of it. But uh, we are, uh, we are processing this information about these places and uh, determining value. Giving away a certificate. Giving away a certificate that has value. I had never thought about that before, but we are making our, uh, we are turning, turning these rocks into valuable minerals. Um, hadn't, hadn't considered that, but that is literally what we do. Tying it all back. Uh, Dan, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want the people to know? Oh, I'm sure there's lots of things that we could talk about, but, um, but I think we've, we've, got a pretty good head start on all of this well i absolutely want you back on the show you are so insightful and thoughtful and passionate about your job and the work you do in preservation and you know highly appreciative of of people like you in our office so thank you so much if i were to say do your own time how would you respond to that if i were to say do your own time yeah how would you respond to that I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what you mean when you say do your own time. <laughs> Most people don't. So. <laughs> What's the first thing that pops in your head? Do your own time. I'm like calculating my own, yeah, my own work. Did I, did I work 40 hours this week or did I work 43 hours this week, I'm responsible for knowing and calculating my time. Okay. I don't know. (laughs) I feel like that was the wrong answer. (laughs) It's one of my favorites so far. I I have literally no idea what do 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 your own time and do your own number. We'll talk to you next week. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. We have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. I bet you we got better, better count of them inmates here. Then you're doing out at that new kindergarten you build out there. Why do you call it a kindergarten? Because it is. Uh, that was one of the reasons I got so upset with the prison system. Uh, pool tables, uh, TVs in their cells. Uh, that's not a prison, my God. That was a prison. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You open your mouth, you had it. You was a number when you walked through that door. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. Huh. And the inmates understood that. And see, the funny part of it is, inmates like it better when you have a secured, disciplined, harsh prison than a goddamn kindergarten.